This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive, your favourite fantasy world building podcast. I mean, I certainly hope it is. Yeah, so I really, really hope that it is because um, if if it isn't, write in, let us know what is and we can kill them. I mean, congratulate them. I'll kill them. I'm not going to mince words. I'll kill them. Um, I do want you to know how much effort it took during the introduction, a little peek behind the curtain, Tully and I. Just before the recording started, we're talking about the beach. Just briefly, for a moment, it took all the effort I have in my entire body to not, as the music started, because Tully muted me, obviously. And <laughs> as soon as he unmuted me, I was like, I could go on a rant about jellyfish right now. <laughs> oh, I could say so much about jellyfish and it'd be so fucking funny. And I hope that you guys appreciate that I didn't. And if you don't appreciate it, hit me up on Twitter. I'll send you my secret jellyfish episode. At piss them. That is my Twitter. Yeah, no, no joke. That it. I think it was originally meant as a joke, and then you just made the thing. Well, it was never meant as a joke. I thought, it was, oh, I'm, okay, it was funny. It was meant to be funny. I always meant it though. I as soon as I said it, I made the Twitter. <laughs> I made the Twitter while we were recording that episode. <laughs> that's right. I forgot. I about just that. haven't tweeted with it because I've seen a couple of tweets. Oh, that's true. Sometimes I yell at Scott Morrison. Yeah, it's mostly yelling at Scott Morris. He's dumb all the time. <laughs> I don't know what else you expect me to do. Anyway, welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive. We talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, so every week we get together and we talk about a different topic uh, that relates to your fantasy, fantasy world building. Uh, and we just take apart different things about it to try and build it better. Yeah, we do the research. We look into the kind of real world implications of things, how things actually work and give you that info. So things can, I don't know, feel... Yeah. Honest? Organic? Yeah. Pick a word. And one one big thing, and this is something that I realise we haven't made very clear, but I think it's important to take, is that we don't do this so that you can have an absolutely perfect and accurate world. That's not why we do it. Oh, God, no. We do it so that you can start building important story th- elements out of uh, things that didn't used to be interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, realistically, all of the things you're going to put in your D&D games or your whatever games are going to be stuff that's either based in real life or based in real-life fiction, which is then just a variation on the things we see in real life. And it's like, sure, you don't have to follow those rules. Like, for instance, today we're talking about travel. Travel in throughout history has not been especially exciting, mm. but it did follow... Rules. It had to evolve and develop in a very specific way. And if you're going to break those rules, you, you know should what at they least, are. yeah, you should know what the rules you're breaking. You can't break a rule effectively if you don't know what it is. Yeah. Um. So, 
Not to say um, the episode is going to be boring or anything. Please, please keep listening. Oh yeah, we are absolutely going to riff on these things and talk about implementation stuff like that. How to make these things interesting? Because I mean, if they're not interesting, why are you talking about them in your game? Yeah, that'd be dumb. Um. Oh, sorry. Very important. First thing we need to say, um, apart from the three-minute rant that we just went on, uh, is that we are sitting here in the studio uh, in Brisbane, which is the the Minjin land of the Turrbal and Yagara people. And uh, we pay our respects to um, Indigenous elders past, present and future. Uh, if, you, if you are a member of the Indigenous community and you want to be a part of this discussion, we would happily have you on. We'd love to engage with you in discussion about it yeah. uh, and to have you here. Um, but yeah, these lands have always been places of, of storytelling and of um, teaching and learning and we plan to continue in that tradition. Yeah, as best as we can. And uh, sovereignty was never ceded. Sovereignty was never ceded. Um, Second announcement uh, is that uh, last week we said that Danae would be back this week. Um, we lied. Unfortunately, just due to the way that this works out with the pressure of doing a research-based podcast, unfortunately, Danae is not able to continue with us. Um, we wish her all the best. We're going to see her in our personal lives and maybe someday you'll hear her on another podcast. But until then, all the best, Danae. We love you deeply and thank you for sticking with us so far. Yeah, thanks, Danae, if you're listening. And if you're not, it's pretty rude. <laughs> it's pretty rude. So, today we're going to be talking about road transport. Yeah, well, just well, kind of general transport. Land, land, land transport. Land transport for the most part. Uh, I mean, I do have a thing. I will say the Mesopotamians are credited with the sailboat. Woo! It's the only sailboat information I had. Well, it, it works. There you go. Yeah. They, I don't even think, it doesn't even seem like they did it. They're just credited with it because no one really knows. Yeah. Um, did you want to kick us off? Sure. So, okay. There's a myth going around on the internet I found on Reddit and Cora. Reputable source. The the two best sources. It's weird that it seems to have spread as well because the premise is people have been asking, is it true that people in the Middle Ages travelled, I don't know, it was like seven or nine miles or something in their lifetime? Which just... It doesn't seem right. Factual. It's just not true. People moved around. People moved around actually a lot more than you'd expect. Um, so you may have heard this kind of floating around. It was the first thing I found when I was looking into this. Um, actually, it was one of the first, the, two of the first websites I found were the Reddit and the Quora page that seemed to only be able to cite each other. Um, so doing a little bit more digging. Turns out, people moved around a lot in the Middle Ages. I'm going to talk about uh, Middle Ages specifically in kind of like Britain and Europe vaguely, but mostly Britain for the most part, to begin with. So, it is true that a lot of people that lived in the countryside didn't move around a whole lot. But, I mean, that's kind of true for anyone that lives in the countryside. It always has been. Yeah, you, absolutely. You've got to look after your, your patch. Yeah, if you live in the country, you're probably agricultural folk. Uh, that's labour-intensive and time-consuming and requires a lot of focus and dedication throughout most of the year. And you probably have a lot of land and a big community and don't really want for much. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Before the... Before all the issues that come with being a, a farmer or being in agriculture... These days, mm, uh, in, before in capitalism, a, in a modern capitalist society, yeah, being a a food producer was essentially quite a good job. Yeah, 
Um, it's, so it seems like, for the most part, people in the country kind of travelled long distances mainly to get to the city. That's kind of as a rule. Mm. Uh, it was just like people who were... And cities, I won't super get into it, but it was kind of a combination of just like general not being safe in the world. And Vikings kept coming in. So they put walls up to be like, hey, Vikings, don't kill us. We have walls now. And everyone was like, man, we should hang out in those walls. Those walls seem like a really good idea. So everyone just kind of showed up. So people went on like massive pilgrimages, like all across Britain. They would travel from like one end of the country to to the other, which I mean, living in rural areas was pretty unheard of at the time, just to like make a better life for themselves. Yeah. But they also around the kind of, I think around the 1600s, I believe, I will find that date and correct myself if that is incorrect. Yep. Uh, they started going on long-distance travel for pilgrimages in Britain. Oh, yeah. There was a specific... A specific... um, What's the word for it? Place? Yeah, I guess like Holy site? a site. It was like it was it was some ruins found. Um, sorry, not sixteen hundred. I think around the twelve hundred. Sorry, um, this it was. Oh, I don't have the specific saint that it was, but basically, there's the ruins of this holy site that was really strongly associated with a major saint in the kind of Christian canon. Mm. Um, was discovered, and so people started making these massive pilgrimages to get out there. It would take like weeks or months to get there it was thousands and thousands of miles uh and it's just like it's just kind of not what you really think about around Mm. that time uh there are some people who went on just like massive journeys on their own accord for instance um william of rubric wrote a a rubric sorry wrote a book in 1250 sorry wrote a book about his journey which began in 1253 which went through went from rubrock i don't know where specifically rubrock is through to uh i think we've pronounced rubrock four different ways now look i don't i don't care no one's listening from rubrock what are you gonna what's william gonna do is he gonna he's gonna walk another three years to come and get me william if you're listening (laughs) um he wrote this book called Journey to the Eastern Parts of the World. Uh, and he just went on like a three-year trip through to Russia just to like see what was up. And he just did. Nice. People just kind of did that. Um, there was also a lot of travel for trade. That was a really big thing. Mm. Um, so Because like a lot of local markets and stuff would obviously only have what you could get in the area. Lots of places didn't have like big rich merchants that were like shipping things through like small towns all the time. Yeah. And we're talking about an era where there weren't really a lot of big cities, if there were any at all for a lot of this time. Like we're talking about a time where they were just putting up walls and building cities to begin with. Uh, So they would obviously have their like local markets they would have to travel to. um, However, so often they wanted supplies, but they would also... uh, a couple times a year have these like massive like regional markets that sometimes people would have to travel up to a week to get to. And that would basically be where all like the big rich merchants took all their 
expensive wares and yeah, their fancy and stuff. You'd save for years to go and buy something nice at the markets. Yeah, it's like the it, it's basically the place where you would go to get the things you could never get. It was a big deal. Mm. Uh, so people travel for that like all the time. Obviously, merchants were traveling all over because yeah. they were doing their nasty thang. They're actually a big part of the the evolution of land transport. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Merchants were kind of the main people doing it. Kind of the driving factor. Yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, probably. Uh, well, especially because um, it was only really merchants that were taking like carts and stuff. Most mm. people would be walking on foot because they didn't have access to horses or carts or whatever. And yeah. The roads in Britain sucked shit. Yeah, I'll get a little bit into the, the actual construction of them later, but holy crap, they're bad. Yeah, well, because the, the Romans built a bunch of roads, and then everyone was like, when Rome fell, they were like, okay. We'll just use the roads that they made and then forget that roads exist. Yeah, the, the roads are here. We can kind of use them. And then, obviously, several hundred years pass, and they're not really roads anymore. They're just kind of... Muddy paths. I mean, the um, the Appian Way is still in use. Oh, yeah, but that's because around the 12th century, they started repairing Roman roads. That's true. Uh, up until then, they were, like, in ridiculous disrepair without having access to, like, travelling things like animals or carts or a ship or something. You really couldn't get anywhere other than by foot, and getting anywhere by foot sucked super bad because you're walking through the wilderness or you're walking on this like dangerous uneven muddy path Mm. um so yeah like it was something you would obviously have to avoid and people would if they were traveling any large distances travel by sea if they could yeah because it's just so much more efficient before you get modern technology for road construction and transport yeah yeah um, the other thing is that kind of hindered travel at the time was uh, peasantry were considered to belong to the king and the land and the king's land. So you would have to get direct permission to leave the king's land. So you can't really travel super vast distances because the king's not going to let you. He wants you to stay there for a reason. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that, that puts in context. I know you've talked about the state of contract law back in the day being you enter into a relationship with someone, but I'd never considered peasantry to be a relationship to the king or oh, absolutely. To, be, to the monarch. Absolutely. Um, the rankings of like feudal society that you see in that like triangle you get given in high school, mm. those were like codified things. Those were codified relationships to the king. They're not even like a caste system where, like, they, they are kind of like a caste system, but mm. it's not even like a caste system where it is just like, you're this class, ergo, we don't associate you, with you. It's literally, the king has hired you to be a peasant, except he doesn't pay you. Yeah, your class is your relationship with the king. Because in feudal society, the king owns all the land, mm. and therefore the king owns everything that comes from the land, including its people and its resources and its whatever. So anyone that was to exist in a feudal society existed with permission from the king. So you have like these very codified relationships, and you didn't have to know what the relationships were. You just had to be in that relationship. So I wish, I wish the prime minister had the, the right to just end me. Oh, dude. 
dude. If honestly, if Scott Morrison could just kill me dead, then I just keep tweeting at him till he dead. That'd that'd do it. For legal reasons, that was a joke. I mean, look, Scott, <laughs> Scott, because Scott, I know you've seen my Twitter. I know you're listening. Look, Scotty, buddy, if you want to come to my house, you know where I live. You're the prime minister. You know where my license is registered. You talk know where all my stuff's registered. Just talk to ASIO. Just come on down. Just come on down. We can chat. We can chat it out. You can yell at me about tweets. Shoot me in the head. I'll shut up. Problem solved. Problem solved. Come Problem on down, solved. Scott. Come on down. <laughs> Scott Morrison, if you're listening, come on down. Come on down. Also, come on the podcast. <laughs> Love to have you on here. Uh, you can talk about uh, having a go. <laughs> Uh, this is the origins of thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Scott Morrison. Anyway, uh, so yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of travel in like medieval Britain in a nutshell. It's just peasantry travel on foot as far as they need to, except for occasionally when they would go to, obviously when there was like big tawnies and like melees and stuff, people would travel from pretty far and wide to that. But then again, that was more like the knights and the merchants and the lords and stuff. Yeah, it's not even the really vast a peasantry. Distances. Yeah, well, because kind of the appeal of it, from what I can gather, is that it was like coming to you. Like the, the nobility and the extravagance and the luxury finally came to the country. So the, the peasantry would wait around for a t- tournament to happen where they were. Yeah, it's kind of, it's the same as those like big kind of yearly or seasonal markets where... You wouldn't just go it's, because it's you the heard. Th- show. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't go because you heard there was a market. You would go because in your region there was a market. It's the Nambour show. Yeah, literally. It's the Eka. It's the the Kabulcha show. It's those ones. It's it, that is very likely where the idea came from, at least in part. Um, oh, people! People! I will say, people did travel more in cities because they just kind of. They had more money. They were able to travel around a lot more. Mm. They had and like you more, don't have a, a property to look after. Yeah, and you have more access to kind of like the knowledge of modern civilization, whatever the fuck that means. Uh, so you'd like I suppose you could yeah you could go to a place to find a map to follow the map. Yeah, well, because most peasantry and stuff, and I mean most people in general were traveling just kind of like word of mouth. You would just tell people where things were. You would give them like a record of your trip or whatever, but they didn't have like maps to go off of or anything. Mm. So yeah, there was like really kind of the wealthy managed to travel uh, vaster differences. The vaster distances, sorry. The big thing that changed uh, obviously was the Black Death uh, forced everyone out of the country. Um, Everyone was basically like, there was this big kind of void to be filled in the cities. Uh, mm. Everyone in the city had been killed by this terrible plague. And then all of a sudden there was so much work to do. There was so much more space. There was like a real need for people to come. And that really encouraged uh, kind of like a traveling mentality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really only the uh, the merchants for the most part that set up kind of like this idea that we have of like Europe as something that with all these roads that can be traveled. Mm. It was kind of yeah, after the Romans had gone and that wasn't really like a focus of civilization anymore. It was kind of just the wealthy going going like across countries and to different kingdoms and stuff because yeah. no one else would be allowed to. If you're a merchant, you can offer the king some cut of your pay. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um I didn't do a lot of a lot of research into it just because 
I didn't have a whole lot of, I didn't have enough time to, but I did see that it was a lot more common for these like big pilgrimages, these big like religious pilgrimages mm. in Islamic countries, uh, even way earlier. Yeah. They like held that as like I mean, it a is, valuable thing it's long before. It's one of the eight pillars of Islam. Oh, uh, is it? Is pilgrimage, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, that makes sense. And I, I imagine uh, uh, people who subscribe to Judaism as well probably were going on more bigger pilgrimages. I believe there is like, there's some, I, I don't know too much about the Jewish faith, but I believe there is a pilgrimage like hard coded into it. Yeah. To well, cause Jerusalem. It, birthright. Yeah. Yeah. It's um just kind of visiting the Holy Land. Uh, yeah. I don't know when birthright came about as like a common practice though. So I don't know if that was necessarily like a widespread thing uh, kind of historically. I know that it is now. Yeah. Um, um but yeah, definitely for Islam, it's one of the core tenets of of the faith is pilgrimage. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Uh, along with charity and um, I can't remember what it is, but like adhering to the the dietary restrictions of not eating pork, and in some cases, there's a, a couple more more restrictions about like certain animal products that you can and can't have. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's kind of exhausted my knowledge of it. But essentially, there are yeah eight core tenets that they have to follow as part of the the Islamic faith. Okay. And one of them is pilgrimage specifically to Mecca. Yes. Oh, yeah, actually, I, I found the article that was talking about it. Yeah. Uh, in the 6th and 7th centuries uh, around the birth of Muhammad and the kind of rise of Islam following that, yeah, mm. uh, Mecca, which is now in Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, was a massive focal point of... Uh, Islamic pilgrimage. And specifically to the Kabbal. It's called the Hajj, which means to intend a journey. It takes place in the last month of each Islamic year. It's compulsory for all physically and financially capable Muslims to carry out at least once in their lifetime. Yes. Um, um, of the 15 million Muslims who arrive in Mecca annually, over 2 million arrive for the Hajj. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. And it's apparently you, the largest annual gathering of people anywhere in the world. It is absolutely worthwhile looking up footage of the 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 pilgrimage to the Kabbal, uh, which literally just means the cube. It's a big stone cube um, in which there is I, I believe there's some history about the smashing of false idols there. Um uh, but essentially it is this one structure that you march around. Um, and it is just stunning seeing footage of it. Um, Sounds really interesting. I think I will briefly mention that pilgrimage in a couple of episodes as well. So keep stay tuned for that. Yeah, sounds good. Um, other than that, there were there were obviously like some some kind of touristy destinations. Uh, People would travel through kind of like the Mediterranean. Some people would go to Italy if they could. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, that was kind of it. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about that I thought was interesting was because now that we've talked a bit about a couple of different cultures, but they're all kind of around that like Europe kind of Middle Eastern region, which was all kind of in some sense considered as like a group, you know? Yeah. Like those were places that interacted with each other quite extensively throughout this period of history. Yeah, Europe as a as a general rule was quite connected. Yeah. Yeah, people I mean people people have been trading with the Middle East. I mean the golden age of Islam was around this time. It was started in about 1800. Uh, sorry, 800. Uh so this was kind of a time where obviously people were coming and going from the Middle East 
a lot. Yeah. An interesting thing is a lot of Europeans weren't traveling into Africa. And I was reading an in, a really interesting article about the use of the wheel in West Africa specifically. Because apparently, they just don't. It just, yeah. ha- it just didn't happen. They it, just didn't use it. It was really interesting figuring this out because, I mean... Obviously, if you if you see photos of us on the socials, you will know that we are some of the whitest people you'll meet. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting um, looking at it, knowing that the wheel wasn't hugely used, but not knowing why or like what reasons behind that. Yeah. So kind of the common, I feel, explanation for why they didn't really use the wheel around that region of the world, so people often say, like, they didn't know about the wheel. But that is categorically untrue. Yeah, just patently lying. The first wheel transport came probably from Egypt. Uh, the, it was the horse-drawn, like, war chariot. Uh, seems to have come around the second millennium BC. They'd been around for forever. Like, really, as long as... You can kind of look back. They had wheels. Yeah, you got to remember that the Holy Roman Empire included Egypt for a long time. Mm. Well, it was actually, yeah, because I believe they got them... I mean, I'm guessing here, but I'd imagine some kind of like Alexandrian or similar crusade came through because they actually came from Asia originally. Ah, there you uh, go. They came from Asia and then went to... Egypt from there. Yeah, so it probably would have been um, the Greeks then. It would have been Alexander. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Uh, I'm talking out of my ass there. I didn't actually look at that. <laughs> I couldn't find sources for that. Um, but it, it does... When, it you, when you think about the fact that the proximity um, with Egypt being right there, having had Alexandrian control and Roman control mm. and Islamic control, that they would have had the wheel at least appear in Africa a couple times. Yeah, and they did for forever. Uh, in fact, even as like far south as uh, some regions around um, the Niger River, mm. the like bend, the like northwestern bend of the Niger River, uh, they found like carvings dating back to like f- five hundred AD or something. Oh, sorry, CE is the. Is the correct? Yes, we we should be using era. CE and BCE. Yeah, uh, from about like 500 CE, they have they have uh, like drawings of horse and ox drawn carriages. Yeah, so they, they have had wheels. Yeah, in fact, it seems that the main reason they didn't really use them was they just kind of sucked for the region. Yeah, wheels were not useful given. The, the terrain and the animals that they had. Yeah, well, yeah. So when it seems like they were a little bit more used in North Africa. I didn't see any far... I didn't get a chance to look any further south than West Africa. But uh, in West Africa, even though people were kind of using them uh, sporadically throughout the continent, they just never really kicked off. off. They used them for a while for the uh, war chariots. They kept those in employ. Hmm. But, I mean, as soon as they got cavalry, that was completely superseded, which isn't even unique to the region. Anyone it in the entire happening. world that had cavalry, that had chariots for military purposes, as soon as they worked out, oh, shit, we can just sit on horses. They were like, no, nah, we're done. 
we're done. Chariots are gone. They're, they're stupid. They're they're like cumbersome. They're slow. Why don't we it's just sit on a horse? Them. Yeah, it's like you're sitting on a horse. You ride up to someone on a chariot. You stab them in the neck, and then you've got more horses, oh, yeah. and you can put more people on them. It is important to note that one, like when we think of chariots and the way they operate, like you you picture this really smoothly riding thing, like the opening to the Prince of Egypt, right? Yeah, that that chariot scene is amazing, and that's what you imagine, but. You've got to remember that wheel construction was not that good and the spokes would have been greased with animal fat. It wouldn't, the wheels wouldn't move like the wheels on your car or the wheels on your bicycle or even the wheels on your wheel, the wheel on your wheelbarrow. It would have been a lot more resistance because it's wood on wood that has to stick together and is greased with animal fat. Yeah, imagine those. You know how you see those pictures of like really chunky wooden wheels with like chips in them and stuff, and it's and you kind of look at it or, or like stone ones, that kind of thing that you see mm. like kind of in depictions of prehistoric man. I'm using air quotes um, because actually we didn't really have wheels until about five thousand years ago, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah, that was still within history. I'll get to that a bit. A bit. But like that's what we're dealing with. These like kind of rough-hewn, like, large, bulky wooden wheels on, yeah, like, wooden spokes and shit. It it didn't make sense. So they used them for a little bit, then they kind of picked up for especially heavy loads. Uh, They started using ox-drawn carriages. Mm. But then, fourth century, something interesting happens. Yeah, this this was something that I didn't realise happened as late as the fourth century. Yeah, fourth century CE, all of a sudden... The Sahara starts seeing camels. And camels were perfect for the terrain. Mm, I mean, just amazing. Camels had uh, originally evolved in America, turns out, uh, yeah. and had crossed the, uh, the land bridge that horses had crossed. So, horses, you know how horses went from Asia to America? Mm. Camels just went the other way. They just, like, they, they crossed over, they said hi on the peninsula, <laughs> and then. Like, kept going. <laughs> they, sh- they shook hands in the middle. <laughs> um, and yeah, as soon as they get camels, uh, and the reason that they think it's kind of contemporaneous is the oldest, sorry, the most recent depictions of carriages that we could, f- that, that have been found in the region, in West Africa, of like stone carvings and paintings and stuff, coincide, they believe, with the time that the first carvings of camels camels. started and it was basically just you have this expensive and laborious and slow way to get things around and then all of a sudden here's this animal that seems custom designed for pack for like carrying heavy loads yeah and is perfect for the sand it's well weighted it sit it's work walks on sand really easily it can travel for long distances uh between food and water yeah. breaks and it just and it can carry a lot they're big animals like if you have never ridden a camel oh they're enormous creatures they are like you know how you think horses are big and then you finally see one and it's like holy shit horses are big it's like that, but to a whole new level. They it's like, are massive. Imagine what you first thought a horse would look like, and then you saw a horse, and you're like, fuck, that's so big. Like, imagine that you'd originally pictured camels as the size horses ended up being, 
and then you saw camels. It's like that level of difference. It's insane how big these fuckers are. Yeah. And it really goes to show how how much they were used for uh, like human purposes because there like aren't any uh, wild camels in existence at all. There are some in the Gobi Desert, and that's it. Well, well, that yeah, they're, they're, this is the thing is that, and this is something that you can weave into your world is <laughs> is that camels originated in the Americas, right? They crossed that land bridge into northern Asia, which is like modern-day Russia, Mongolia, China. Mm. Um, and that's where they live mostly now. They live there, and then there's some populations in India and then and the Middle East and then northern Africa. Not wild ones. No, not wild ones, but there are populations. Yeah, the, the only like native, as native yeah. as anything can be to anything, native, uh, wild, literally the one kind of camel. Everywhere else is just feral camels. Yes, and that is one interesting thing is thanks to the introduction of a small population of camels during early settlement of Australia, early exploration by non-Indigenous peoples. Early colonisation. Yeah, it wasn't even the colonisation point though. It was, it was still exploration. Oh, really? Yeah. I um, mean, wasn't exploration by Europeans always with an eye towards colonisation though? Yes, it just, I haven't seen any non-colonial accounts. It's just that they didn't settle the centre of Australia at the same time they were putting camels out there. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, but um, yeah, essentially to travel the the vast swathes of desert there are, they brought camels. Once they had built railways, that was no longer necessary, so they let a couple of camels loose. Fast forward to now, where we have a feral camel population of, what, 700,000, you said? 700,000. There are so many feral camels in Australia that... And keeping in mind, Tully mentioned a few places where there are feral camels. The, popula- the camel population in Australia gets its own Wikipedia article. None of the others do. We've just got that many. Yeah, there's a because lot. There's I, no predators for a camel in Australia. And 70% of our country is desert, so it's... Perfect for them. It's like their exact terrain. They feel right at home because, like, these are animals that we domesticated and essentially custom evolved. If you listen to our domestication episode, yes, custom evolved to be not just creatures that could travel from North America to Asia across like a tenuous land bridge, but that could travel across weeks of desert with heavy loads and people on their back without drinking water. Yeah. That's what that's what we made camels into. And because of the enormous fat reserves they have, they can just survive and then they gorge themselves when they can. It's yeah. They were absolutely perfect for it. So yeah, as soon as as soon as they get camels in, in Western Africa, they're like, fuck horses, fuck, fuck ox. We're done. We're done with everything. Because the the war chariot stayed around for a little while, but even but then obviously that was superseded, like I said. But yeah, these carriages were just like, they just dropped them, like, immediately. They barely used them, mm. and then immediately were just like, ah, oh, fuck it, camels are way better. Yeah. So, yeah, interestingly, the long, to cut a long story short, cut a probably too long story short, oops. Uh, yeah, if you ever hear people be like, well, they didn't use wheels in West Africa, be like, oh, yeah, maybe it's because it was fucking stupid. They used them, and they were like, nah, we'll come up with something better, and they did. Yeah, they don't use cam- camels in West Africa because they were smart. Yeah, they evolved past it. Yeah. Um, so, you happy with all that? That's all, all you've got researched at the moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, I probably have some other stuff uh, that's... I've that I've lost buried in my we can seven hundred tabs. <laughs> you can revisit once I finish. Um, 
So I'm I'm basically going to talk a little bit about like the history of the wheel and how different traveling conditions affect road construction. So very specifically, I'm going to talk about roads, how built roads work, and why you're not going to see them that much. That's that's the the long story short of what I'm about to say. Yeah. So essentially you I started by looking at trade routes, like things like the Silk Road and how people traveled on them. Funnily enough, the Silk Road doesn't have that many roads. Oh, yeah. It's it's just the way that people got places. It wasn't a defined road. Yeah. It was definitely not constructed. Because, again, like I was saying, like they didn't have these maps with routes. It was just like, like the Silk Road was a record of people's travel between those two regions. Yeah, the closest to a road that the Silk Road, for the most part, gets is a series of caravanserai, which are basically, they're basically like hostels for traders. It had enough space for pack animals to rest, uh, have some water, some food, and a bunch of traders stopped there. Interesting. that meant that they didn't have to stop and camp, so they could keep moving every day. So the routes that existed weren't roads themselves, they were just the only safe way to get anywhere. Yeah, they were the waypoints between the easy recuperation spots. And basically, it was this... Um, and I'm yet to... I haven't found a source, but w- that's this is the thing. This has been quoted a couple of times, but I can't find any primary sources that back it up. It seems that one of the reasons the Silk Road was so fast at times is because traders would move for three or four days, they'd get to a certain caravanserai, and then they'd pass on their wares to the next trader who would continue on while they had a rest. Oh, okay. And it was basically like a modern postal system is where like, one person takes it to one waypoint and then the next person carries it on. And then while you're resting, you don't have any shit. Suddenly, you're well-rested, you're ready to go, and you're like, I don't want to sit in the... I don't want to pay for this in anymore. And someone else shows up exhausted and they're like, oh, dude, that's yeah, really good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I need a fucking break. Yeah, so that's something... I've been need- walking since Mongolia. So that's something that I'll have a more a bit more of a look at when we get to the history of trade, I think. But... That's, oh, that's going to be a hell of an app. That's going to be a big app. But um, yeah, essentially, that's the as as distinct as roads really got as far as the Silk Road goes and that sort of trading route goes. Interesting. So I then started looking at the evolution of the wheel and pack and um, the draft animals and how that affected road construction. So here is a potted history of. Wheels, animals, and roads. Just to quickly distinguish, a uh, pack animal is, because it confuses me all the time, I believe a pack animal is an animal that walks on its own and carries things on its back. A draft animal is one that pulls a carriage. Yes, that yes. is absolutely correct. So if you're thinking pack animals, they're more like your llamas, your um, alpacas, your um, camels, as we were talking about. They're going to be things that just... You strap some things to donkeys also. Mm. Um, you strap some things to and you ride or walk alongside and they will carry the load. Mm. You draft animals, you're looking at like horses and ox and things that aren't really good at like carrying things on their back but are strong. Yes, exactly. So essentially the, the, the first known uses of pack animals goes as far back as the Neolithic era. So that's anywhere between 10,000 and 4,500 BCE. Yeah, that's about when we started domestication to begin with, so that makes yeah. sense. Um, so when plows were developed to start plowing fields, um, that's just they were animal-drawn plows. 
that's when we developed what's called a, a travoy, which is basically two sticks tied together that you hung some stuff on and then dragged behind you. Um, cool. We'd attach them to animals or we'd try keep them ourselves. But essentially, it's just these two sticks that we drag behind us um, like a uh, like an inverse V. Oh, it's like what you see when you see people in depictions of like building the pyramids and they've got the like big, they've got like sticks on their shoulders and like big slabs of stone in the middle. That's exactly And, and it's it. like two slaves with like, sti- with the like sticks between them. Almost. A similar concept, similar concept at least. So you'd, you'd drag the back of the stick along the ground. That's, that seems a little bit easier. And so honestly. what developed from that is um, what's called, uh, I'll get to it in a bit, but what's called a, a ridgeway. And basically you just develop these ridges that the sticks went through and it was almost like a train track for you to drag oh, stuff. Oh, you mean on the ground, not on your body. Oh my God. I thought you were saying that they put the sticks on them so much and they were so heavy that it created like grooves in their <laughs> shoulders that were spit. they could like strap sticks into. Fortunately not. <laughs> they domesticated no. themselves into pack animals. Um, so yeah, it would develop these roads called ridgeways, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, so following... That following the the travoy, they started developing sleds, which exactly as you would expect expect is just a smooth bottomed thing that or something that had like a couple of I'm a smooth bottom thing. <laughs> it's basically just like a platform that had an easy to drag surface. I'm kidding. It's like Sasquatch down there. <laughs> <laughs> Hate that. <laughs> Bad. Um, anyway, so they developed sleds. Thoughts are that happened around about 5,000 BCE, so just before the end of the Neolithic era. Um, now, there is there is some rumour that people used logs as rollers, so just use a series of logs and rolled things across. There is little to no evidence that this ever happened. Aww. Because if you think about it, with the exception of enormous pieces of stone, they're the, just... The energy economy of doing that is way off. Oh yeah, it only makes sense if you're moving something that's so difficult to move that, that you it's couldn't drag easier it. to move giant logs than to move the thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's not a lot of things. You typically, if something's that big, you're just like, well, I guess it's safe there. Yeah, exactly. If 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 it would not move on a sled, maybe it's considerable, but realistically, um, the action economy of moving moving each log, which gets you about 30 centimetres to maybe a metre if you space them out well. Every metre you travel, moving a giant log to from the back to the front, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's Realistically, just impractical. Unless you're moving just giant carved pieces of stone, it's not worth it. So there's, there's little to no evidence that that ever actually happened. Now, the first wheel for transport, not pottery wheels and stuff like that, but the first wheel that we used for transport happened somewhere between 3,700 and 3,500 BCE. Wait, so they did pottery wheels first? Yeah. Yeah. So weird that we just had that sitting there and someday someone looked at that and they were like, hold on a fucking second. (laughs) Yeah, wild. Whoever discovered that, like, good on you. Oh, we've been making vases like idiots this whole time. (laughs) Holy shit. I'm going to go to Italy. <laughs> so these developed these developed um, in the Uruk region um, around Sumeria, Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. Um, around in what is now Hungary, they also developed wheeled vehicles um, as, old, as far back as 3,200 to 3,000 BCE. Um, and then 
um, some of these were stone, some of these were clay. Sometimes you'd see horizontal slices of trees. Hey, um, hey, hey Tully, when did they get wheels in Thirsty? <laughs> <laughs> The reason I let you keep talking so long before I interrupted you was I couldn't think of how to word the joke. The whole time it's all I was thinking about. <laughs> You're an animal. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so they would sometimes use horizontal slices of trees, which was just like, it's just a, a slice of tree, but it's just, it wasn't stable. That's the mm. thing is because trees are not perfectly circular. It just didn't work. Yeah, they're, that's fair. They're not perfectly... But they're not perfect tubes. Trees, as a rule, are resistant to becoming wheels, it turns out. Yeah. Really, yeah. It really takes some doing. Um, anyway, so spoked wheels started appearing around about 2000 BCE in, a, in Sintasha culture, which is around about kind of where Kazakhstan is. Um, and basically, that's where you would get uh, a plank and you would, you would get a bunch of planks out from a central point and they would reinforce the surface of the wheel. That helped things enormously. Because I guess then you can have like a thinner, easier to make, more precisely circular thing and without lighter. the risk of it breaking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it would be lighter. It would be easier to repair. Exactly. So it's essentially... It's like a flat pack, flat pack wheel. Yeah, exactly. Um, so spoked wheels kind of, they were refined and discovered all over the world in discrete, discrete cultures in discrete ways. It's one of those universal constants. They just discovered, maybe not constants, but because uh, like... There are some areas yeah. that just didn't do them. But where everyone, they, everyone knew about the wheel. Where they used the wheel for transport, the spoked wheel was discovered or imported. Yeah. Um, and it was discovered a few different places. Um, now, they didn't actually occur in the Americas until European colonization, um, or at least European influence there. And Because, again, just wasn't, wouldn't have been practical for the region and the, yeah. and the, people's, the native people's specific needs. It's, it's mostly attributed to a lack of easily domesticated draft animals. Just mm. pack animals were way more common. Yeah. Um, and the bison and the cattle there were just not easily trainable. Yeah. They hadn't been domesticated for purpose, and by the time they got there, it wasn't worth it. Yeah, horses weren't super... Co- like, I think there were some horses in the area, but there weren't a whole lot, not really around kind of yeah. that region. Um, but essentially, what I'm getting at with this whole different lot of road construction of um, wheels is that road construction really differs based on the needs. Mm. Um, so I'm just going through a couple of factors in road construction. Then I'll run you through some some common roads that you might see and just features of them. So is part of it is is there anyone to finance the construction and upkeep of the road? Because if there isn't help. anyone to finance the construction, then it's not going to get built. And if it gets built and there's no one to finance the upkeep, it's going to fall apart. Mm. It's weird how it's weird how far back the like undertones of capitalism stretch. Yeah. Um, so if it's being paid for by the monarch, then maybe it'll just exist. Um, if it's being paid for by the state or local authorities, sometimes there'll be tolls there. If it's being paid for by traders, then usually there'll be things like caravanserai and they'll be going along there. Um, but if there's no one to pay for it, it's not really going to get constructed unless there's a common local need for it. Yeah, I mean, it's not really until much, much later that we just assume, when we started just assuming that roads were like a given, mm. 
That's like such a modern idea to just like have roads everywhere. Exactly. And which leads into my next thing. Who will be using the road? So is it traders? If so, there'll be caravanserai. There'll be trading spots along the way. Is it farmers? Because if it is, it's probably just full of use for for pack animals. Yeah. Um, And if it's armies, they're going to be wide and they're going to be between big cities. Yeah. Um, So then what terrain is it built on? If it's built on a marshland, then it's going to be much harder to construct certain kinds of roads. Um, If it's built built in a valley, then it might just be a cleared path. Um, If it's built in the middle of a city, then it's probably probably more likely to be a constructed road. Mm. It it seems like kind of the main big, like, well-constructed roads that existed, uh, like, in kind of the open were really just, like, connecting big civilization hubs. Pretty much. Um, And then you get into what materials are available. So, depending on what your civilization has access to, it will change how the road's constructed. So there's like if they use a lot of stone, then it'll probably be made of stones. If it's made of if they've discovered brick and tar, then it's going to be a brick road that's possibly tarred over, that's possibly cemented with um, asphalt. God, can you imagine just walking around in like ancient Rome just like on some asphalt? Like, what's up? Um, specifically the Middle East. Oh, interesting. Yes. So um Tar was discovered in the Middle East around about 5000 BC uh, and they wow. started they started using it as an adhesive as a waterproofing agent as uh, road covering for very early. It really wasn't used until the, in the West until about 1700 CE. Yeah, so there's about 7000 years there where the Middle East had tar used it regularly and we just didn't. No one just no one had looked at it. it, which is so weird because it obviously makes sense. It's the best thing to put on top of a road. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just used as, you, you know, the the biblical story of Moses being put in a basket made of reeds and sent down the river. Sure. It is believed. See, I, I was raised in Sunday school, so. Oh, so was I. Was, so was I. I just. You just don't remember shit? Yeah, I was more kind of like a, I was kind of like a real Christian kid. I was like a really outspoken Christian kid. So it was more more like a New Testament was kind of my bag. Okay. I really don't know whether to take you seriously. No, I was like literally until I was about, uh, I probably dropped it, uh, fell fell away from it when I was about like uh, 12, maybe 13 at the latest, maybe a little bit before. But I was like, there was a period of my life in like kind of primary school where I was like evangelical. Wow. I was like so hardcore. It was just because it was like, it was all I'd ever known. just the thing, yeah. I mean, but yeah, essentially that story of Moses being sent down the, the river in a basket made of reeds, that is likely to have been waterproofed with tar, with asphalt. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. It would be pretty fucking hard to go down the river in a basket of reeds and be still be alive enough to be Moses at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise. Um. What are you gonna do? Just get a bunch of bees to shit on it? Use some bee wax, idiot? No, you got um, a whole you got a whole Moses in there. Yeah, that's not I, enough. And the evolution of glue is a different thing entirely. That happened a lot later. Um, so then, how refined are the pro- <laughs> the processing methods for these particular elements? Uh, so, how is stone carving? Do they have metal tools for stone carving? When they make bricks, do they use reeds in them, or is it just clay? Um, can they refine tar? And then how expensive are those materials? Mm, um, that would be yeah. a big factor. Also, wood is possible. It's just not likely. Yeah, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense, would it? I've got it? two kinds of... I've got... 
yeah, three kinds of wood roads, two that I mentioned here. That's so dumb. I'm just like, I'm immediately thinking about that. And I know nothing about you carpentry and I know nothing about wood. And I'm already just like, well, that's the dumbest thing you could do. That's the yep. worst thing you could, might as well just, le- just make it dirt. Just yeah. like get the grass out of the way so it's smooth. So the first one is exactly that. It's a ridgeway. Basically, these are caused by just, they're just tracks laid by people regularly dragging things along a certain road. It will be the beaten path. Yeah. Um, they'll have removed rocks and foliage um, either to the side or they'll build, they'll just move around it. Um, and essentially the pros of this, the good things is it's low, little to no maintenance at all. Mm. It's basically just keep walking on it and it'll be fine. If people still need it, it'll still be a road. And if something blocks it, move around and you'll build the new ridgeway with your footsteps. Yeah. Um, and then it'll just develop in areas where no regular flooding or landslides occur. Like, by the evolution of the road itself, the fact that it has lasted long enough to be beaten down by regular travel means that it is not regularly disrupted. Yeah, it's an area where people can travel because you can't have a path that's that beaten if you if people aren't traveling on it. Like, it, like you wait even just a few weeks, yeah. and that's gonna uh, the you can guarantee that somebody's gonna travel on that road. Yeah, topsoil is gonna change. You can start growing grass. Otherwise, like it's got to yeah. be someone coming through all the time. Um, it's interesting. Negatives for that, though, is it'll meander around because it moves based on the countryside. It's not necessarily a straight A to B. It won't be the most direct route. And again, when without maps and stuff, when all you're doing, when your only reference points are like landmarks that your cousin's friend told you about, like, of course, you're not going to be traveling like a perfect straight line as the crow flies. Exactly. Um, and they're not going to be that well signposted either. They tend to only be as wide as things that are traveling through. So if it's just a farmer traveling through there, it's not going to be very wide, very wide. However, if there's lots of merchants or people on pilgrimage or armies traveling through there, then it's going to be bigger. It's going to be wider. Um, then, and yeah, if it's disrupted, it could cause issues for a lot of people. Like mm, if you if yeah. you can find a way to disrupt a beaten path, then they basically have to explore the wilderness until they find another part of the path. Or you keep exploring until they just accidentally make one in three years. Well, that's the thing. They've got to find a way to get to their their destination first. Yeah, that's... Oh, that would suck. Yep. Um, so, they're going to be your most likely long-distance roads. Are just your, your beaten paths. They're going to be the easiest way to get from A to B using existing methods because it follows the natural landmarks. And I guess kind of the downside of it also would be because it is just unplanned and it's the most used, most convenient route, there isn't going to be any other... There's not going to be a route B. No. You've got the beaten path because that's the only way to get there. Pretty much. Um, so then we talk about boardwalks. Now, when I talked about marshland and how you're going to move around marshland, this is the most common way. Is basically it's wooden boardwalk. Now, it can get... The, the pros of this are that... Oh, yeah, it's exactly what you expect. It's boards laid out in a path. Just on the ground? Just um, raised from the ground. That oh, is a defining okay. feature. That makes sense because that would be dumb to just put wooden planks on the yeah. ground in the middle of the fucking marsh, huh? So these are generally like through bogs, marshland, or just like uneven terrain. Oh, okay. um, and they are always wooden, staked into the ground. They can be as thin as a single board wide and... That's not the length of a single board. That's the width of a single board. What? Look at the Whitmore Bogway. 
Oh my god! Just quickly look up the Whitmore Bogway. Everyone at home, look up the Whitmore Bogway. W h i t m w o r Bogway. Um, and essentially, what it shows you is that there's two wooden stakes put in a cross, and then one plank laid between, like sets of crosses, and then just wooden plank laid between them. Um, and it's literally just because people needed to walk from A to B without getting foot rot. Oof, yikes. Yes. Um, and it was easier to just have that one wooden plank. So you're not going to be able to take your horses there. You're not going to be able to carry things very well because you're going to be putting one foot after the other. Um, it's just going to be hard to cross. How did you spell that, Tully? Um, hang on. I'll try and find the... <laughs> see, this is one of the ones that... This is one of the ones that I decided I didn't want to keep. Um, oh, beans. Yeah, I can't find it anywhere. Uh, here we are. Deep dive, roads, Whitmore Bog Trackway. Sorry, that's my bad. Ah, that'd do it. W-I-T-T-M-O-O-R. There we go. Trackway. So you can see the construction of this. Um, maybe there's better images if you look at Sweet Track. Okay. Um, the Sweet Track has a really good description. And this is one of the oldest known um, boardwalks, especially the way that this is. And Whoa, yeah. Go That's down to construction. Ancient. You can see um, a cross-section of how it's constructed. It's just a cross with a board and then just, <laughs> yeah. Um, and essentially that... Yeah, whoa. It's literally just like a balance beam through some fucking plants. Yes. Uh, so essentially that's where you're at with that sort of construction, but they can be oh, as that's wide. that's the worst. They can be as wide as what you imagine a boardwalk to be these days, which is planks laid um, horizontally from you, like perpendicular from the way you're walking, just over over each other, like a regular boardwalk. Um, now, the pluses for this, they're easy to construct, they're easy to repair, very low cost if your cost of timber is low. Yeah. Um, you don't need, uh, diff- like, you don't need level ground to build them. It just needs to be raised from the ground. Yeah, yes. Um, as long as as long as the ground's firm enough to be able to stake, then that's really exactly kind of all it takes. If you've got giant logs, you can stake as far down as you want. That's true. That's um, true. Eventually, you'll find something solid. Yeah. Uh, the problem is they must. They, the materials have to be prefabricated. You can't build it on the side of the road. You have to mm. build it and then take it along the existing road to the next part of the road. Have to be so well planned. Um, and it rots easy. Yeah. And then, as as I said before, with a sweet track, it can be very thin. It can basically be a balance beam. So, essentially, this is almost always going to be pretty short. They're going to be single file tra- travel, no wagons, no, um, no animals, no vehicles, nothing like that. And if you fall off, you're definitely in difficult terrain. Um, and the areas that they're built, likely once you fall off, you're wet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, I know. No, I'm not going to make that joke. So then one of the two other kinds of wooden roads, uh, what's called a corduroy track. A corduroy track is where you get uncut logs and you just lay them horizontally across your path. Now, the the pros of this are, and this, this is mostly to bypass, just broken bits of road, mud, soft earth, things that you can't build a road on. Um, now, that's basically it. 
The pros of this, it's real fast to assemble. Like you just lay your logs down and that's it. That's done. Yeah, it seems pretty easy. However, the cons of this, it you slip really easily on it. If you take any animals across it, it will break their legs. If you... Um, it rots really quickly because it's directly in wet earth and it requires a lot of wood. Um, yeah, it seems like it's just the worst idea. It's literally only good if you end up with a giant swampy bit, or like a swampy track where you used to have a road and you need to get sleds across. Huh, yeah. That's the only useful thing. Uh, for anyone at home that heard me say, I'm not going to make that joke because I'm, Tully can't cut that out now that I say it. Uh, the joke I was going to make was something to do with Shrek and being wet, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Just for reference, just so you know why I didn't say it. Um, but the corduroy track, it's <laughs> hard to travel on. It's going to rot really easily, and it's only very slightly faster than travelling through mud itself. The only pro is it keeps you dry. <laughs> um, and then there is, there is evidence of uh, plank roads being used, uh, in Canada and Australia, which tells you how recent it is because the countries that we used were called at that point Canada and Australia, and all of those projects were abandoned because it was just not worth the money. Yeah. Because it was for the money that they were they were paying to put planks down on the road, it was easier to just travel on the dry ground. Just go around. Yeah. But yeah, because you're talking about a time like a like a kind of colonial era. You're talking about a time where like literally happened in the time we had motor vehicles in Australia. What? Yep. What? <laughs> so finally, you get to some of the best roads around. I just don't get it. People have been walking around here for forever. That was the, the the whole thing was that the people that lived here before white people showed up and fucked everything were nomads. Like it's so easy to get around here. Yep. Why? Do that. Oh, whatever. Yeah. So then okay. we get into brick paved roads. Um, this is like your Middle Eastern cultures. If you have bricks and if you have tar, this is going to be some of the more effective road that you can build as far as making it, making it like the, as far as building it for longevity. Um, it's going to be expensive. So it's mostly going to be built in capitals, in areas with quite a lot of wealth, or areas that export the materials that you're building the roads with. Yeah, it'd have to have some some significance. Yeah, to be so worth it. Essentially, bricks um, they're easy to make identically. That's like these are some of the pros of making these things. Um, it's you can literally just, their whole deal. Yeah, you can just make them exactly the same over and over again out of ingredients like clay. Um, if you just make it out of clay, they're going to be really brittle. So if you Bake if you bake clay, sorry, if you mix it with hay or straw, it helps it keep its shape, but it doesn't make it as brittle. Oh, is that what those weird, like, kind of blue, bumpy plastic tubes are that you find like around construction sites and sometimes in like broken bit, broken bricks and stuff? There's like those weird, like, pl- do you know what I mean? No. It kind of looks like, imagine, did you ever use those, like, uh, I think they're called, like, connects or something. Those, like, that yep. you used to make, like, the roller coasters and stuff. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's like, no, I have no idea. Those little tubes like that. I, oh, I think. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about bricks. Essentially. I'm really, I'm really showing my hand here. Essentially, it was back before we had the, in, the ingredients to mix into bricks. It was just easy to take clay and water and straw and stomp them together. Literally think beginning of the Prince of Egypt. There is a scene where it happens. I I haven't seen the Prince of Egypt. Oh, man. Just some of the best Christian propaganda you'll ever see. (laughs) Oh, well, now I'm in. 
legitimately though, this is it's the project back when DreamWorks was making Shrek. This was the project that they thought was going to make them money. And if you if you fucked up on the Prince of Egypt, you got sent to what they called the Gulag, which was sending you to Shrek. <laughs> um, like it was a high profile film, and for good reason. It is excellent. Honestly, forgetting all the forgetting the fact that it's literally the story of Moses. Yeah, Moses. Um, it is just a good film. One of the best animated films of its time. Okay. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, mixing clay and hay together makes it less brittle. Um, now, if you bake it in the sun, they're going to be soft bricks, but if you bake them in a kiln, if you have ovens that you can do this with, it, they're going to be really tough. Um, then you adhere, you um, put them together using either mortar, which is kind of like plaster of Paris with some extra ingredients. That's going to degrade when you get in contact with water. Um, it's just kind of bad and it's very brittle um, or you can use tar discovered in the Middle East very good very easy to use melts at about 50 degrees Celsius so if it gets really hot it might start getting sticky uh, that's without additives modern asphalt has additives in it hmm. in most parts of the world still areas of the UK it's it's more expensive to use the additives so they just have the regular paved roads oh yeah so when climate change happens and it gets to 50 degrees in the UK then they're going to start seeing like even in some areas where you've got heavy, like really sunny days, it will start to melt the pavement. Interesting. Um, where you don't see that here because we had to build it for hot conditions. Yeah, obviously you were never gonna. Never gonna. You get were never gonna get Australia. Australia. <laughs> um, anyway, it is waterproof, which means it was used in some areas just to pave the top of roads and cover them up, and it made it really easy to waterproof your roads and to waterproof your Moses. Yes. Uh, so, basically, using bricks and tar in this way, it graded uh, from generally flat to extremely smooth. You would get such good, like, level roads using this. It was amazing. Um, and it was perfect for wheeled vehicles and really durable. It lasted a while. Mm. The cons of it, it's really expensive because you use a lot of manual labor to build bricks and the tar was expensive uh, and time-consuming to build because you had to individually lay the bricks. Really, um, would really suck shit to walk on too. Yeah, not 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 people or animal friendly. Very much, not very much something that's designed for yeah, like something with like an animal with like wooden with like like a horse with horseshoes mm. and a carriage. You know, um, one of the other downsides though is that because they because they it is waterproof. If you don't build drainage on the, on either side, it can flood or it can break really easily. Oh yeah, um, and this that's another factor of paved roads in general. That's interesting because um, I guess I guess that you, we're talking about a time where you're not going to be doing you're not going to have the the knowledge or the technology to be building like a strong foundation under it. Probably yeah. just like putting bricks on the ground and putting tar over the top. And I'll get to the foundations in a sec. Um, oh. This is with stone paved roads. This was important. Um, it's basically different layers of soil and crushed stone, uh, and then pavers on the top. Ooh. So whether these be flat pavers or whether it be cobblestones that are laid end-to-end to to create a roughly flat surface. Mm -hmm. Kind of depends um, on where they are, how expensive it is, what the stone-cutting technology is. If you Mm. can cut uh, flat sandstone pavers, really easy to build a flat road. Oh, yeah. Whereas if you're in England and all you have is 
cobblestone, then you can't cut it as easily and you've just got to make a rough road. Yeah, you, you've really got to cut your losses at a certain point. Yeah, same with um, the, the the roads of the Appian Way, the, their cobblestone. Okay. Um, sandstone does degrade. That's uh, an important thing to note. It is a softer stone because it's a sedimentary rock. Yeah, it's 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 made of sand. Yeah, but essentially you, you need to weigh up whether you have metallurgy for stone cutting. Uh, they're generally going to be pretty bumpy unless you've cut flagstones. Uh, even with flagstones, unless you're using big pavers, it's still going to be rough. And drainage needs to be built on either side. Again, very important. Um now it's relatively inexpensive because it's for wheeled vehicle travel because it's just stone, uh, and it can be used in wet conditions. It doesn't get swampy. It doesn't get slippery. You just keep moving on it. Hold on. I mean, it would get slippery. It does it's get slippery, but stone. it doesn't get as slippery as straight tar, and it doesn't get as like it doesn't marsh up like that's true because i guess if it's not as smooth then you're dealing with like natural grooves and stuff so you've mm-hmm. got you've got more to kind of stick your feet on also you'll start to see in some paved roads that just grooves start to develop around about the same gauge as carriages oh okay. um yeah so just another just kind of like a, a not always but you will see in it in the road yeah exactly you'll see it in some areas sometimes it's built in but not very often um seems like it'd be a lot of work yeah but they are very bumpy, so you need some suspension. Um, and then these weren't really perfected until quite a lot after the time periods that we based a lot of this stuff on. But crushed stone roads, basically, they were advanced... Like gravel roads. Yeah, gravel roads. They were kind of developed in the 1800s. Oh, okay. Um, to, to the extent of being good, well-usable roads. So, like, not not long before kind of cars started showing up? Yeah, it was, it was around about the point of common carriage use and getting into the the era of starting to develop the precursors to cars. Interesting. So essentially it's all made of stone and gravel and soil. Um, the, the biggest development was um, when macadam roads were created. Of course. Um, by a, a person called, I believe, John McAdam. That being said, it's not spelled the same way. It's just a coincidence that John McAdam... <laughs> oh, wow. I bet he feels really screwed on that one. Yep. So um, close. But Wait, where's the name come from then? From the name of the soil and gravel aggregate that they use at the bottom. It's called macadam. Um, <laughs> oh, fuck. And then you put rocks for about 20 centimetres. Uh, each of those rocks need to weigh around about uh, six ounces, which is... Think six ounces. What's six ounces, ounces, about 170 grams. Um, so each of those has to weigh around about 170 grams. They're bigger rocks. And then the last, the top five centimeters is fine gravel. And the reason for that is that uh, it's it basically settles into the grooves of itself and creates a nice solid surface that doesn't shift that often. Oh, okay. Um, now, originally, John McAdam decided not to fill the spaces with uh, filling material because it made it susceptible to water damage. But what was eventually found is if you build good drainage on either side, then you can actually fill it with soil and it makes it a lot more sturdy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I guess if it's just kind of loose rocks, then yeah. the, the risk is that eventually like it starts it rains too heavy and it just wash the rocks away. And essentially what happens if you build good drainage around it um, is that once people start driving on it, it will settle into one flat surface. Like the, generally oh, the yeah. overall pressure will settle it down and it will become a good road. Whereas if you leave out the filling material, it stays rough because it's got nothing to like sink into. Oh, no, it'll still settle. It's just 
not as waterproof and it's a little more prone to the elements. I also imagine it wouldn't be as smooth. No. Well, it's, it's still gravel on the top. It's the bottom rock that you fill in. Hmm. Maybe uh, I just don't know anything. But um, essentially the pros of this, crushed gravel is real easy. It just compresses nice and quickly. And it's easy to repair because you just add more gravel and then sweep bits away. Um, the cons of it, it's still bumpy. It can get washed away with excess weather. And it's... With excess weather. I love that turn of phrase. And it's really Man, we've had way too much weather lately, guys. I'm done. <laughs> um, and essentially, unless you're using automobiles or like a lot of wheeled vehicles... It's really not that much better than the beaten track. Yeah, it's kind of a waste of time, really. Yeah, you can use it in slightly wet weather, which is better than the beaten track. It doesn't get bogged. Oh, okay. But apart from that, it's pretty much even. God, it makes me think of, it's like my favorite picture in the entire world is this uh, is this great like sweeping shot of this, uh, of like a university campus or something. And like, um, like it seems like a, like a capital city. It's this like really well-built area with these like wide like brick paths um and it's like really carefully like manicured gardens and whatever and it the photo is of like a an intersection like a four-way intersection in these paths Mm. and you see in like the corner in like one of the gardens there's just like this beaten path that just like cuts the corner (laughs) and it's so funny because it's like these like city planners spent millions of dollars and years planning this like perfect beautiful path and everyone's like that's fucking i'm not gonna walk like an extra three meters it's fucking stupid so like i guess thinking roads are dumb is really just kind of it's kind of just how humans are that's really just a fact of of one thing we can all hold together is hating roads yeah walking on roads is dumb as hell (laughs) anyway we'll be back in a quick in a that's the wrong way to talk into the microphone. We'll be back in a hot second. We're going to have a quick chat about how you can implement things, maybe a bit of a story hook, and then we'll finish off because then you can get to the rest of your life and catch us next week. Ooh, Bye-bye. And you're back in the room. Hello, everyone. We came up with a quest. It's been a little while since we since we did like a, a story hook. Yeah, yeah. We kind of, in the sewers episode, we kind of built a city itself. And then last week, we had a look more at just implementation of various different like things, like different mechanics. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to give a, a story hook again. Yeah. So, uh, imagine your party's just... Wandering through the wilderness, maybe maybe walking on a beaten path, you know, just traveling around, and then all of a sudden, you come across this this black line in the ground, and this is this is something that you've never seen before. It's a it's a hard surface. It seems to be just smooth for so long. You go to like tap it, and it's not like hollow or anything, but it's like a little s- soft. It's a hot day, and it like. There's like black stuff on your hand and it's like this weird mass and it just stretches into the distance as far as the eye can see. So you, you follow this this pathway that's been laid out for you and after days of travel, it leads you to a city. A beautiful, well-constructed city full of just well-planned 
roads and houses and it has been clearly been built for purpose. Yeah, we're talking like, you know, at the end of Cars, after Lightning McQueen has finally fixed the road, like we're talking like perfect asphalt roads. Like this is incredible. This is something that you've you've never even conceived of before. And no one's here. It's completely deserted. And you've got to wonder why. Why indeed, Tolly? Why so indeed? If you want to explore the area around, you might find that exact reason, which is off in the distance. You start to see people travelling around, not on their own, but on the backs of enormous animals. And only every so often. Your party might stay and explore this city for like a couple of days and then just like walk up into a watchtower and just see like one person in the distance. And this animal could be... something. Anything that you would like to bring to it, as long as it can be introduced to the area. Yeah. It's... This could be anything from uh, a giant dra- a giant pack animal to a sandworm. <laughs> it, it could be a giant camel. It could be a worm. It could be a bloody eagle. It just can't fit on the roads that they built. They have little like fishbowl helmets, like spacesuits, so that they can go <laughs> underground with the worm. So it doesn't just like fill I mean, them with have, sand. Just dune, but add domestication. <laughs> Fuck, that'd be way better. <laughs> oh, that'd be way more interesting. Um, yeah, but it's essentially, it is a perfect reason for people to move away from a civilization, uh, move away from a perfectly built city, if it's just easier to travel and live with your animals that don't work on roads. Yeah, maybe it's the, the desert, and it's like it's like like camels were introduced to Western Africa in the 4th century and superseded wheels. Maybe it was just a lot longer. Maybe they've been doing roads for a long time, and then all yeah. of a sudden something showed up, and they were like, "Oh fuck, this is way better." Man, don't we look like idiots? <laughs> oh guys, guys, we need a. That's way cooler. And yeah. then they just go over there. Running sandworms is way cooler than walking on a fucking road. Yeah, and uh, to all the viewers, uh, all the listeners who thought that it was pointless us talking about camels, suck it. Haha, everything makes sense now. All the different road types and the Africa thing that I went on that seemed pointless. All of it makes sense now. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to Dungeon Deep Dive for another week. Uh, It's a good podcast. It's a fair hunk of time we just spent talking about roads and we love that you guys take the time to listen. Uh, It really does warm our hearts so much. Uh, Last week I mentioned if you could... um, just give us a mention on the D&D survey. That would be fantastic. The links were in the show notes. I'll put them in the show notes again this week. Oh, is that still going? Uh, yep. Survey's still going. When's that close? Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, check the links in the just in the show notes yep. because that's going to close at some point. And I don't know. It'd be cool to just you know, maybe get an email there a little it'd bit more. It'd be cool to like get us. It'd be lovely to get us noticed by such a big company as Wizards. Um, and it would be really cool if you guys could let us know that you've done it, um, what you want to see from us in future, if you've used any of our story hooks, if you listen to our sister podcast, Hooked on the Network, which I have been appearing on regularly and haven't promoted on our socials, that's my bad. Oopsies. At least you use the socials. Our Twitter feed is dead. Um, But essentially, let us know that you love us. Um, We're going to engage more on the socials if we know that you're there as well. Um, Literally, if anyone tweets at me at the Twitter, I will... that that will make it so I tweet like every day. Literally, a single person tweets at me, and I'm like, I get it now. 
Shout out to Brooke for giving us likes and uh, the occasional tweet. I love it. Thank you, Brooke. Oh, wow. Have, people, have there actually been people that have done that? Just, just the one. It's man. just Brooke. Oh, Brooke. Thank, thank God for you. Um, we love sorry you. that I, I made it sound like you hadn't tweeted at us, Brooke. I... I mean, I just, I'm sorry, I don't check it enough. Yes, Brooke and Grace, you have been our social engagement. And thank you <laughs> to the rest of you. We would love it if you commented, if you gave us feedback, if you put in uh, ideas, fan art, um, suggestions, anything you'd like. We want to hear from you. Uh, you can catch us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dungeon Deep Dive, or email us at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. I promise it gets checked at, very regularly. At this point, it doesn't even need to be about the show. Just like... Just come say hi. Yeah, let us know what you're doing. We can have a chat. Anyway, that's us for this week. Thank Talk you so much. Talk about Scott Morrison some more. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Fucking bye. It's a good outro. <laughs> <laughs>